talk tonight on the theme of faithful or successful Christian living. Maybe there could be a better title. I just hadn't been able to think of one. <laughs> but the thesis of what I'm saying is that I believe our greatest challenge in the Christian life is not just to believe, but to go on believing and believing and believing. And I think that's what God expects of us. For from the moment we're saved and become a part of the body of the Christ, and the, again, from the moment that we are baptized in the Holy Spirit and empowered by God, uh, God has an investment in us. He has deposited His Spirit within us in a very special way. And He expects a return on His deposit. And I want to read this parable now in Matthew chapter 25, which will, uh, to which we'll make some application in a moment. 25, the chapter begins with Jesus uh, speaking parables, and he starts saying in the kingdom of, what the kingdom of heaven is like. And the first one parable there is the parable of the ten virgins. Then down in verse 14, he says again, it will be like. The it refers, of course, to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Again, it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. And to one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent. Uh, a talent... They didn't have coins and talents in those days. A talent refers to a weight of money, uh, about 75 pounds. If we are thinking about silver, that's about 900. Uh, or if we're thinking about uh, gold, that's about 900 troy ounces of gold. And gold at, at uh, $350 an ounce would be somewhere around $30,000. Equivalent today, one talent of money. So it's no little sum that the Lord is entrusting to his uh, servants. He gave one five, he gave one two, and he gave one one, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey, and the man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents came and said, Master, You've entrusted me with two talents, and see, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. 
So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gathered where I've not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents, for everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Well, it's obvious from this parable what the Lord is saying is that he has a right to expect a return and interest earned on the deposit that he's placed within us. It's interesting to notice that the unfaithful steward didn't lose anything. He protected what he had been given by his master. He dug a hole in the ground and buried it. But he didn't earn anything either. He didn't lose anything, but he didn't earn anything. He just held on to what had been entrusted to him and didn't do anything with it. We could say that he maintained the status quo, and yet God called him wicked. Have you ever stopped to think that maintaining the status quo is a sin? That, I think, is what God is saying to us, that he expects a return on the deposit of his Holy Spirit as it's been deposited in us, that we are to spend a lifetime earning interest for the one who has invested in us. In other words, his spirit is working in us, is meant to produce a harvest, it's meant to produce fruit, it's meant to produce a return, either twofold or fivefold, or whatever, depending on what talent we had given to us or what amount was given to us, but God expects a return throughout our lifetime. And translating that over into our Christian living and responding in faith to the Spirit of God within us, I want to suggest tonight that there are three kinds of return that the Lord is looking for, or three kinds of faithfulness that God goes on looking for throughout our lifetimes once we have been apprehended by Him. The first kind or the first aspect of faithfulness is that He looks for an increase or a return on His our faithfulness in trusting God for provision, or we could call that miracles, his provision. The second is our faithfulness in trusting God for profession, that is our calling, our job, our career. The first is provision, the second is profession. The first is provision or miracles, the second is profession or ministry, our calling. And then the third God looks for a return on our faithfulness as regards uh, trusting Him for progress. Trusting Him for provision, trusting Him for profession, trusting Him for progress. Trusting Him for miracles, trusting Him for ministry, trusting Him for maturity. I'm giving you uh, alliterative phrases here to help make the point. Another way to state it is that God expects us to not just believe, but to go on believing in these three things. What God wants to do for us, that's in terms of his provision. What God wants to do with us, that's in terms of our calling or our job or our career or our ministry. And thirdly, what God wants to do in us in terms of bringing us into 
the fullness of the likeness and the stature of our Lord Jesus Christ. Provision, profession, progress, our miracles, ministry, our maturity, what God wants to do for us and with us and in us. Now, for many years, I believed in the first two. I had, we'd become open, Alice and I had, to the, to the miraculous realm. Uh, right after we were first married, a friend of ours was miraculously healed, a woman who'd been in uh, our wedding as a, as a bridesmaid. And uh, her husband had been an usher. They were close friends, members of our church, which wasn't a church that believed in miracles. But anyway, she had a miraculous healing, and that opened up, up to the whole a reality of, uh, of the miracle realm. So for many years I'd believed in the miracles, I'd believed in the calling because out of that I was led into the ministry and the realization that God was alive and could perform miracles. But I didn't have any concept about maturity and I want to say something about that and then we're going to go back and uh, look at all three of these. I didn't really see the concept of maturity until I was in the ministry for quite a while. It was about 20 years ago now and I was preaching an adult uh, Bible class, teaching an adult Bible class in the church I was pastoring in Sharon, Pennsylvania, a denominational church, Disciples of Christ, a Christian church. Well, as a matter of fact, that congregation was a federated congregation, American Baptist and Christian church. But anyway, I was teaching this adult Bible class, and I was teaching on uh, Moses leading the children of Israel, teaching on uh, the exodus from, from Egypt to the Promised Land, teaching on the life of Moses. And I was teaching out in Numbers chapter... Uh, well, turn with me to Numbers chapter 20. I'll put it that way. I was teaching on the life of Moses, and I found out, not this particular verse, but this introduced me to it, the fact that while God was using Moses to lead the children of Israel, God was also working out his purpose in Moses, that he was wanting to bring Moses to a point of maturity uh, because God was using Moses to lead what would amount to about 2.5 million people. Scripture says there were 600,000 men plus women and children in the Exodus. So if you have wives and allow two children to, uh, for family, that runs about close to two and a half million people right there, which was no mean feat for him to lead those folks. But anyway, I saw that God was also dealing with Moses. And then in this Numbers chapter 20, I read this account where no, Moses fell short. Now this is where he He's got the people, the, the children of Israel were murmurers. They were always complaining. And they're out there now at this particular point, And uh, they're, they're in a desert and they're running out of water. And so it says in the first month, this is chapter 20 of Numbers. The first month the whole of Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin. And they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. And now there was no water for the community. And the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. And they quarreled with Moses and said, If only we died with our brothers when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert, we and our livestock, that we should die here? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting, fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, you and your brother Aaron, and you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together, and speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will bring forth water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he had commanded him. And he and Aaron gathered the assembly together, 
in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I give them. And you know what happened? Because of his disobedience, Moses was allowed to bring the children over to Jordan, but not across the Jordan. He was allowed to look over and see the promised land, but he couldn't enter because of his disobedience. And you need to understand the nature of his disobedience out of this, uh, out of this passage. The staff that Moses carried from the beginning of the time that God began to deal with him, that staff represented the anointing or the authority of God. Moses had told, instructed, uh, God had instructed Moses that he was to take that staff and with it was to liberate the children of Israel. He was to hold that staff and plagues would come forth. He was to throw it down and it would become a snake. And it was a symbol of God's authority and God's miraculous power. And here in this verse 8, it say, God says to Moses, take the staff, take the anointing, take the authority, my anointing, my authority, you and your brother gather the assembly together and holding the staff, speak to the rock. He wasn't to strike the rock, he was to speak to the rock. And the rock would pour out its water. But Moses was fed up with those grumbling Israelites and he lost his temper and instead of speaking to it, he railed at the rock, he railed at the, at the Israelites, calling them rebels, and then said, must we bring you water out of this rock, taking credit for himself, and then taking the rod that symbolized God's authority and anointing, the staff struck the rock in anger and struck it twice. Now, God was faithful and the water came out of the rock. Incidentally, we're told over in, uh, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that that rock was Christ that provided the water. So in a sense, it's like Moses in his anger struck the very person of God in anger, misused as it were, his authority and the anointing and struck the rock in anger. Now the rock provided water anyway and the people were blessed and their needs were met. But Moses failed to test in personal maturity. Moses knew the miracles of God. He knew the provision of God. Moses knew his ministry, his calling. Uh, but where he failed was in the question of maturity. In childish, immature anger, he railed at those children of Israel and with that anger misused the authority and the anointing of God and struck the rock in anger. Now God's miraculous provision was there anyway. I was telling uh, some of the folks last night and I mentioned it to... Um, Ray, that I've just finished a book, which is off to the publisher. It'll be out the end of July. And it has to do, it's a rewrite of a book I did many years ago called True and False Prophets. And it's coming out in a new form called Lead Us Not Into Temptation. And it, but part of it deals with the, uh, how Christian leaders especially are able to abuse the, or misuse the authority and the power of God. That is, they themselves can fall into sin and immorality and heresy and do all kinds of things out of a right motive. But the miracles are still real. God's commitment to us to have our needs met is so great that he will allow even a misuse of his authority and of his power and his anointing in order that people's needs may be met. And this is what happened here. He was interested in meeting the needs of the Israelite community. And so water came out of that rock even though the way Moses did it was in rebellion to the plan and purpose of God. He struck the rock in anger 
wasn't supposed to strike it at all. It was supposed merely to speak to it. So Moses knew the miracles in the ministry, but he failed the maturity test. Now, I don't say this to complain about Moses. He was a great man of God. All I'm saying is that all three things are important. Ministry is important. I mean, uh, 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 miracles are important. Ministry is important. But I believe, and the thing I'm going to share tonight is that I believe that maturity is the most important because that's the thing God is basically after, is to have us grow up in Jesus Christ. I know a minister who spoke of this very problem. He talked about the eternal childhood of the believer. There's a sense in which that's where lots of Christians are. We remain there. We, or we get involved with the things of God and we come to appreciate his provision, his miracles, and we get involved in ministry and helping other people with that way, but we never really grow up. And there are too many immature believers, too many immature leaders in the body of Christ today. It's one of the reasons why the kingdom doesn't come more quickly and why God's purposes in the earth are not more, uh, more quickly accomplished. Okay, now we want to take some time just to look at each one of these three with a real emphasis. Uh, well, there's an emphasis on the second and the third. I'm going to be sharing some things with you on the second that I, about our calling, which I believe may serve as a kind of liberating word for some of you. First, what is it that God wants to do for us? What God wants to do for us is to understand his provision. He wants to do the miracles. These are, this is God's grace at work in us. I agree with Brother Harold Bredesen, who was the man who prayed for Alice and me many years ago when we got the baptism in the Holy Spirit way back in 1952. That makes us pre-charismatics because the charismatic renewal didn't start till 1960. So we were pre-Pentecostal charismatics or something. But anyway, Harold said God showed him one time in a vision or spoke to him in a time of prayer. He said that God revealed that what, God, what grieves God most is not the sins of the sinners, but the satisfiedness of the saints. We are satisfied with so little of him. So satisfied with so little of what God makes available to us. Our vision is so small. Our comprehension of God's grace is so limited. We settle for so little. So many Christians, so-called Christians in the body of Christ, don't even believe that God moves in behalf of people today beyond just saving souls. I mean, you can make a confession of faith and if there is anything to the Christian life, then that'll get you a life insurance policy to get you in heaven when you die. I went to a Bible college and seminary that was like that, denominational Bible college and seminary. I had a professor of sociology who was a brilliant man, graduate of Yale University, had been a Navy chaplain in World War II, came back teaching sociology. And I could tell, I just had a class with him, and I could tell by the way he's talking that he didn't have much understanding or belief, you know, in the power of God. And I was a young, zealous preacher who already believed in the gifts and healing and so forth like that and I was sort of a square peg in a round hole all the time I was in Bible college because I was always arguing with my professors. But anyway, this professor was making some kind of sarcastic remarks one day about certain things in the scripture. So I went up to him afterwards. The class was over and I said, Prof, I, can, I take it from what you're saying about the scriptures and the promises of God and so forth that you really don't believe that God, you don't seem to believe that God hears or answers prayer today. He says, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I said, well, why not? I was really upset. And he said, I don't believe in miracles because nothing has ever happened in my life or in the life of any other believer that I know that would indicate that God ever intervenes in this human life. Boy, I was hot. I said, well, it's a good thing you're teaching and not preaching. Then. And then I realized it was probably worse that he was teaching because he was teaching young ministers. 
and infecting with that kind of skepticism. So many people so satisfied with so little. I can understand how it, how it grieves the heart of God. How, how parents' hearts would be grieved if their children didn't expect anything more from them than just the barest of essentials in order to stay alive. Never any love, never any lavish gifts, never any extra boons or benefits to come out of their love for the children. The children just expect the parents, well, if you'll just give me a crust of bread to eat and a roof over my head, I know that's all I can expect from being a member of the family. But how many children of God are like that? Are there just, uh, in our church, some other, in the church I was first ordained in, some of the ministers just deliberately determined to keep their people from believing in the miraculous. I don't have time, don't want to take time tonight to go into detail of that. I'd, I'd get to letting off too much steam if I did it anyway. I've been out of that rat race for about 20 years and it's still, <laughs> I still warm up when I think about it. <laughs> because I realize in my denomination, the Christian church, the Disciples of Christ I was ordained in, about two million people around the world in that denomination, or used to be, a million and a half, denied by their own leadership, any provision from God other than the minimum forgiveness of sins and a promise of eternal life. Of course, that's the most important and that's the initial thing. They believe that miracles happened way back there in New Testament time. And if they believe in the coming of Christ, they believe that when the kingdom comes, there will be miracles again. Miracles way back then, miracles way in the future, but today, forget it. Well, no wonder the heart of God is greed. I was six years in Bible college and seminary and no one ever told me that the, in the scriptures that the word for salvation in the Greek, which is the Greek word sozo, the word for salvation in the Greek literally means wholeness. It's the word Jesus said to the blind man, be thou made whole. He said, be thou saved. Literally in the Greek. So the very word salvation indicates, as Derek Prince says, the term salvation indicates all that was wrought for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. Like in Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches in grace by Christ Jesus. That means not only the saving of our souls, it means healing, it means provision, it means deliverance. It means everything in the terms of the natural and the supernatural that God is promised in his word which would give us the abundant life. Salvation includes all that Jesus Christ wrought for us on the cross. And I could keep you here all night talking about our own experiences, family's experiences, personal experience of how God, uh, how God miraculously, repeatedly in our lives has made miraculous provision and has done it with such timing that he makes it absolutely certain that we will understand that it's him and that it's just not coincidence. And I thank God we're beginning to see again a resurgence of the miraculous within our own ranks. First thing God looks for a return upon the deposit that he has made in us is that we will not just believe but that we will go on believing and experiencing his miraculous provision. Now secondly, we talked about what God wants to do with us. What God wants to do for us is the miracles. What God wants to do with us has to do with ministry, our calling, our profession. Now most of us begin our Christian experience 
out of a preoccupation with blessings. That's because we come to the Lord out of our need. We come out of a sense of conviction that there's something missing or we hear of the love. Most of us do. Not everybody has a dramatic conversion. And uh, I, don't, I think ideally, maybe our children ought to grow up not ever remembering a time when they didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. They might know a time before they made a professional commitment to that effect. But I believe essentially our five children grew up pretty well knowing that. They grew up in the grace of God in our family. There came a time when they would make a public profession. But I don't believe they ever knew a time when they felt that they were outside the family of God. I think that's the way it ought to be. But anyway, most of us will come in some way out of some sense of need. Or we'll come in out of a preoccupation with blessings. Uh, and many, many a person has come out of sickness or out of some sort of crisis in his life or becomes awareness, aware, even children, uh, that they were sinners. I, had this, I gained this awareness as a child sitting in the Baptist church where my parents were members. And the day came when, listening to the preaching of the Word of God, I came under conviction and knew that even though my family were, was a Christian family, that I needed a personal relationship to Christ. But... Anyway, we're talking about this second thing, that God wants us to know what it is that he wants to do with us in terms of ministry. So the time has to come when we get beyond our preoccupation with what he does for us in order to begin to understand what he wants to do with us. And that God not only saves us from something, but he saves us for something. And... Uh, that means that he, he's called us for a purpose. He wants to do more than just to bless us for blessing's sake. He wants to bless us in order that we can bless others. Now, God will, Brother, Brother Rufus Mosley, he was such a great old saint and a good friend of ours, had a tremendous influence on my, our lives when we were first in the things of God. Rufus used to say, if you bring God a thimble, he'll fill that. God will fill up whatever kind of vessel you offer him. If you bring a cup, he'll fill that. If you bring a bucket, he'll fill that. If you bring a barrel, he'll fill that. But there's something better than just getting your bucket full. There's something God wants more than that. He wants you to kick the bottom out of the bucket. And then the bucket becomes a channel or a pipe. And a bucket will only hold so much of liquid or whatever flows through it. You can only fill a bucket so full. But if you kick the bottom out of it, you had enough time, you could pour the whole Atlantic Ocean through it. And that's the kind of provision God, so God wants us not only to be people with buckets to receive his blessing, but he wants us to become channels or instruments of his blessing to the rest of the world. God uses people to help people. And there's never a person yet that's responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ who didn't have to hear it from somebody else who had responded to the gospel. But I want to say something about, I, I want to try to present something about the concept of ministry tonight that may help some of you. I think we have been guilty of a stereotyped understanding of what ministry is. Quote, that means preaching the word or quote, winning souls or being a preacher or a missionary or a Bible teacher. So we're now, I thank God for my calling. I'm glad I'm a teacher in the body of Christ. I believe the scripture says those who labor in the word are worthy of double honor. I know God puts a high priority on the preaching of the word. But I think we need, the whole body of Christ needs to come to an understanding that every calling, every job, every profession is sacred in God's sight if it is performed to the glory of God. 
Not everybody can become a Bible teacher. Not everybody can become a missionary. Not everybody can become a pulpit man or an orator or even a church administrator or involved in what we call, quote, full-time, unquote, ministry. And I think the kingdom of God and the body of Christ has suffered because we have regulated or our, our, uh, uh, made so many other honorable professions as second-rate because they don't put quote, professional ministry first. I want to tell you that every calling, every job is sacred if it's performed to God's glory. Uh, the Bible makes this clear that not everybody's called to be a full-time religious professional. In the Old Testament, only one of it was only the tribe of Levi that was called to the attention and the duties of the temple and taking care of the sacred things and interpreting God's law. The priesthood, the Levitical uh, tribe was the only one that was called to do that and they were supported by the tithes and offerings and the provision of all the other 11 tribes whose people were engaged in all kinds of professions. Let me tell you, ask you this question, if everybody was a professional preacher or a Bible teacher, who's going to earn the money to pay the tithes to support the ministry? Money, God doesn't have money growing trees. God, God provides for ministry. God provides in a world for people who work. Many of them work with their hands or work with their minds or their brains. I want to tell you the kingdom of God uh, is not, does not merely consist of religious professionals. God needs taxi drivers and musicians and housewives and farmers and airline pilots and carpenters and executives and computer programmers and politicians and public servants and teachers and plumbers and engineers and electricians and garbage collectors and TV repairmen and waitresses and cooks and every one of them can perform their job or their profession to the glory of God. And they can all pray and witness out of the environment in which they're in. They can be full-time Christians in what they're doing and yet earn their living with their hands or their brains. Paul wasn't out of the will of God when he took time out and made tents along with Priscilla and Aquila. They were tent makers for a while. He wasn't any less a godly man because at a while he provided for himself, with his, made money for himself with his hands. And there were times when he told people that he was writing to in his letters. He said, so the time, he said, I deliberately work with my hands so I wouldn't take anything from you. You see, God created a balanced world and society. And society is built upon us serving one another. I got to thinking one day I was in the Chicago airport some years ago waiting to catch a plane. That was such a busy place and so much going on in addition to just the people who were flying. But I stopped and I was sitting there in a chair waiting to catch my flight at one of the gates and I began to think of all of the people that were involved in making it possible for me to get on the airplane and go somewhere to teach or preach the Word of God. Not just the pilots or the crew or the stewardesses and the mechanics and the co-pilots and so forth. But all of the people that were involved in services uh, that made that possible for me, the people that built the airplane, the people that serviced the airplane, the people who sell the tickets, the people who print the tickets, the people who built the terminal, the people who keep the terminal clean, the people who serve the restaurants and clean the restrooms and sweep the floors. Hundreds of thousands of people involved in their own jobs, making their own livings, but it made it possible for me or you to get on an airplane and go someplace, for me to get on a plane and go somewhere and share the gospel. And what they're doing, if it's done to the glory of God, is just as sacred in God's sight as what I'm doing. They help make that possible. People say, well, does God really need politicians and, uh, and uh, 
You know, public servants, elected servants, government servants, sure he does. We talk about the kingdom of God. The term kingdom implies government. God needs people in government. God needs politicians. God needs Christians to run for office and get elected and serve God. God knows this government needs Christians. Some of us were, Bob and Charles and I were up at uh, Bob Mumford and Charles Simpson, Derek Prince and I were, I mean, uh, Bob Mumford and Charles Simpson and myself were at the National Religious Broadcasters in Washington, D.C. recently. We had a booth for our new wine magazine there. And it happened to coincide with the, we were there at the time of the, the day that the president gave the State of the Union message. And it had been delayed a week because of the shuttle disaster. Well, the night that the State of the Union message was to be delivered, uh, Charles and Bob and I were having dinner together with Congressman Mark Siljander from, who's a charismatic Christian congressman from Michigan, a personal friend, who's in one of our covenant churches there, uh, out of one of our covenant churches. And he took us over and we had dinner together in the House of Representatives dining room in the Capitol building and then walked out in the Capitol building and we're standing in the rotunda, the big Capitol rotunda under the dome as the congressmen and senators and others begin to get, come by there. And then the smaller rotunda over to one side, they'd already put up all of the TV cameras and had everything all ready for the congressmen and the senators who were going to be interviewed and make comments on the president's speech afterwards. But we were standing there in the rotunda just as everything was getting ready for that big event. And there were guards and policemen by the hundreds all over the place. But Mark Siljander was telling us a little bit about his own ministry there in the Capitol. He said, when I first came here three terms ago, he said, there were six of us. I found six other congressmen who would pray with me for the kingdom of God to come to this city and that God's will to be done. He said, my second term, there were 12. Now there's 17 of us congressmen who get together and pray and fast regularly that God's will will be done and we come against the satanic forces that are interfering with the work of Congress in this area. And he said, if I keep on getting elected, we're looking forward to the time we'll have at least 60 uh, Christian congressmen who'll be doing this. And we were standing there in the rotunda and he was talking about how they, when they would come and pray in that rotunda, just sit around on the benches at times, not saying anything, but would come and pray to, together. And they also have an office they go and pray with once or twice a week, early in the morning they get together. He said, we bind the demonic forces over this city. And he said, sometimes when we're sitting in this rotunda, it's like we can see the demons flitting around in the Capitol Dome. He said, we're aware of the tremendous principalities and powers that are here. And it's a real challenge uh, to serve God in this way. Do we need politicians and elected officials that are Christian in government? You better believe it. We need them. And if God has his way, someday we're going to have a, we're gonna have a, a Christian Congress in this nation. And that'll be a part of the triumph of the kingdom of God on earth. That's not going to come because, uh, uh, that's not going to come about as a result of people training for the ministry, quote, unquote. I thank God Mark Siljander never went to a seminary. God didn't call him for that, but God has called him to a highland holy calling as a congressman in the United States government. And God's calling a lot of other men. And that's a sacred profession in the eyes of God. And it's not just men who are in high places like that that are serving God. People of the lowest profession serve God. The guy who pushes the broom across the airport terminals. The janitor who cleans his church is a servant of the Most High God. Our problem is that in our teaching and preaching so often we tend to, uh, to not to put those professions down or those jobs down, but we just don't consider them as significant in the kingdom of God. But in the kingdom of God it takes everybody. Nobody is second rate. 
The unfortunate thing is many of us think we're second rate because we're not preaching or teaching. And sometimes ministers, in the words that they say and they preach, people get the idea that somehow that what they're doing, housewife, mother, uh, bus driver, secretary, clerk, janitor, that somehow they're not serving God. Or at least that kind of job doesn't really glorify God. That's a lack of vision. It's a lack of understanding of the nature of the kingdom of God. It's a lack of understanding what it is to serve God. There are, in the kingdom of God, there are no, quote, secular professions. Everything is done. Paul says that whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Remember years ago hearing the story about Sir Christopher Wren, who was a great English architect, built some of the great cathedrals. Over there, he went out to a building site one day and was just walking around, unknown by the work, and came to these guys digging a ditch. And he stopped and was watching. They looked up and he said, what are you doing? One of them says, uh, I'm shoveling dirt. Went on shoveling. The other one said, he said, no, what are you doing? He says, I'm digging a hole. And he asked the third one, he says, what are you doing? The guy looked up with a beaming, smiling face. He said, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build a great cathedral. But he had a vision for what he was doing, even though all he was doing was moving dirt. Well, every one of us ought to be able to take pride in what we're doing and say, I'm helping bring the kingdom of God to earth. One time some years ago, Alice and I were returning back down to Florida, driving across Florida, returning from ministry somewhere, and we pulled off of the Interstate I-75, I guess it is, goes down the middle state. We lived in South Florida at that time in Fort Lauderdale. And we turned, got off, the turn, off of the turnpikes, Sunshine Parkway or Interstate, and drove in this little town to get supper. It was getting late on the afternoon. I don't remember the town, anything else. All I remember, we got off the turnpike just or the parkway just a mile or two, and we came on this little diner at the edge of town. And we just pulled in there to get a bite to eat, get a hamburger or something. And I believe God brought us in there. Because we pulled up and got out and went and sat in this diner. It was just a little place, literally like a diner, you know, they used to make from a, a, a train car, that sort of thing. And there were just some stools at the counter and then a few booths down one side. And the thing was open so that you could see the owner and the chef who was behind the, uh, you know, back there in the kitchen with his, uh, where he fried his hamburgers and everything. All that was open and you could see him. And he was, if we ever saw a man who was doing what God had called him to do, it was that fry cook in that diner. He was also the owner. But it was also open so that you could actually see when he was frying the hamburgers and so forth. And I tell you, to watch him was to watch. He had such grace on him as he worked there in the kitchen that it would be like a great symphony conductor. The way he would slap the, the uh, meat patties on the fire and flatten them with a spatula, the way he'd flip them and turn them, the way he'd spread the buns and put on the pickles and the mustard and everything else, carrying, and, and carrying on a happy conversation with people in the diner all the time. It was literally like watching a symphony uh, conductor conduct a symphony to see it was like poetry in motion to watch him. He never missed a trick. And he knew people enjoyed watching him do what he was doing. And he was, that little guy was frying hamburgers to the glory of God. And he knew that he was blessing people in what he was doing. And people enjoyed not only watching him fix them, we enjoyed eating them because they were good hamburgers. It was a, really a, almost a worship experience to sit there in a booth and watch that man <laughs> do what he did. And Alice and I left. I came out of that hamburger joint thinking how many people I knew that I wish could come and see that man 
do what he was doing. People who are dissatisfied and blue and disgruntled because they think what they're doing doesn't count anything for the kingdom of God. Every task, if it's done to the glory of God, is sacred. Some of you may have read the classic little devotion booklet written way back hundreds of years ago called The Practice of the Presence of God by a medieval monk called Brother Lawrence. And the book has become a classic in literature. It's just a little booklet, but it's, it's lived on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And Brother, Brother Lawrence was a monk in a Catholic, Roman Catholic monastery who would not have been remembered to history had he not written this little classic which has come down through the centuries and blessed generation after generation of Christians. And he tells about that, how he developed this uh, devotion to God. Of course, in those monks in those monasteries or in a cloistered life, they were supposed to spend their time just staying in the presence of God and praying and worship and writing manuscripts and just copying manuscripts and this sort of thing. But they had to take their turns doing KP, that is the kitchen duty and washing the pots and pans. And that's the one thing that Brother Lawrence hated more than anything else. He hated kitchen duty. He hated those greasy the kitchen sink. And he did, as the years went on, and he would worship and praise God. He said he found more of the glory in the presence of God, washing the pots and pans, than in anything else he did in his Christian life. He said, the time came when it was an interruption of my worship to leave the kitchen sink and go to Mass, to hear the Mass. A man who found God in the most menial of tasks and who could do it to the glory of God. I think that's what God's longing to discover in us, a return on the deposit he makes in us in terms of our ministry or our calling. Thank God for every religious professional. Thank God, I thank God for my calling. But I thank God for the thousands of people who are involved in things that bless my life and make my life easier, and they do it to the glory of God. All right, what God wants to do for us what God wants to do with us. The third one, in some ways the most important, maybe what God wants to do in us, which is to bring us to maturity. Sometimes, in order to accomplish this, God has to change some other things he's doing. Uh, time comes when, if we become too preoccupied with his blessings and too preoccupied with a successful ministry, God may shut those things down for a while but if they stand in the way of maturity. He may put us into situations that are very difficult for a while in order to work something in us that cannot be worked if everything is going well. Uh, I used to think some years ago when people would say, uh, what, do you believe it, what do you believe it is to be mature in Christ? And I thought for a while, I thought, well, to be mature in Christ would mean that I would finally have enough faith that I could meet every situation with a miracle. I could pray with enough faith and God had answered. So, well, that was a very, there's nothing wrong with that except it's just immature. <laughs> it's a very nice idea, but it doesn't work. Because there's some things God cannot accomplish in us with a miracle. There's some things that will never be accomplished in us if we can always get a miracle. Sometimes miracles would prevent what God wants to accomplish in us. Because what God wants to, our growing up in Christ and becoming Christ-like is something more than just blessing and calling. I'm indebted to Charles Simpson for this definition of maturity. There are many definitions that would be adequate, but I like this one. 
Charles says, to be mature is to be able to act redemptively in every situation. To be mature is to be able to act redemptively in every situation. I like that. And that means if you take that, honestly, God's going to see to it that you're in a lot of situations where you're going to have the opportunity to act redemptively. To be mature, of course, is to become Christ-like, to grow up in Jesus Christ. And that means that we're going to have to go through some of the same sort of things that he went through. It's so much easier to believe that it's God's will for us to have good things happen than it's God's will for us to have to endure things that aren't good and unpleasant. But to become Christ-like, to be mature, is that we're going to have to be subject to the discipline that God, with which God disciplines his sons and daughters. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, the 4th through the 11th verses. You're not going to like this, but I'm going to read it anyway. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 4. We're talking about becoming mature and becoming Christ-like. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Or we could add, of course, as a daughter. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. To be mature or to grow up in Jesus Christ means that we have to endure certain things. Certain things have to be worked in us that can only be worked through hardship or through stress or through crisis. We love the spiritual mountain peaks where wonderful things happen. But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, we don't grow on spiritual mountain peaks. Growth comes in the valleys between the mountain peaks. And you can't have mountain peaks without valleys in between. Now, one of the reasons why we don't like to talk about maturity, or it's sometimes even difficult, seems difficult to teach about, is because there is nothing dramatic about maturity. There's nothing spectacular about maturity. Maturity can't be achieved overnight or over the weekend or over a month, or over a semester, or over six months, or over a year. Maturity comes through a lifetime of believing and believing and going on believing and going on being obedient. Maturity means Christ's character being formed in us. When the blessings and the miracles and the gifts of God come, they represent God's supernatural intervention to our lives. They reflect God's miraculous nature. But Christ's character being formed in us it means the fruit of the Spirit which is being developed in our lives. And fruit takes time to produce. Gifts can 
Blessings can appear instantly and miraculously, but you can't make fruit appear instantly. Fruit is something that comes when Christ's character begins to be formed in us. And we've got so many immature Christians who can talk the talk, but who can't walk the walk. That he can talk about maturity, they can talk about the things of God. They're like the, uh, they're like the people Jesus talked about in the parable of the sower of the seed, how some seed fall on the path and the birds eat it. Some seed falls on thorny, on rocky ground, rocky soil, and it springs up immediately and grows, but then it withers and perishes for lack of root. That is, it can't put down roots in the rocky soil. And so it looks good for a little while, but when the heat comes and the drought comes, then it'll wither because it hasn't taken any root. There are Christians like that who look good immediately. They're charismatic Christians, come in and get blessed by God and begin to do all kinds of wonderful things. But then it amazes me and disturbs and concerns me how a few years later so many people that you used to hear so much about suddenly have disappeared. They didn't have the root. They didn't have the stamina. They didn't have what it took to become mature. Maturity doesn't come in an instant. We can't be prayed into it. We can't be delivered into it. We can't be blessed into it. It takes faithful, day-by-day sowing and living and trusting God. You can't produce, you know, a family overnight. Oh, you can give birth to kids in an instant. But the, that's not the hard part. The hardest part in rearing a family is not growing them, is not giving birth to them. It's growing them up. Some of you may have heard this TV tape of Bill Cosby's when he talks about his family and have trouble with his kids. And he tells his wife one day, he said, he said, I didn't mean for us to have to grow all this. He said, well, I just want to have kids and then have them grow up and go to college. <laughs> well, it'd be nice if you could skip all of that in between, you see, but you can't. Because God has made us responsible to bring our kids up to maturity, to adulthood. And that takes time. But it's a wonderful thing when you see it work. I was teaching in a conference out in St. Louis one time. I used to teach a lot on the family, as your own pastor and others have done. I was teaching in this conference, and one summer Alice and I were there with uh, Glenn and Lisa and Laura, three youngest children, before any of them were married. And uh, the conference ground was in a, in a place that was about as hot as I've ever been. It was a real hot July anyway, and this conference ground was kind of down in a bowl with hills ringed around it where no real air could get in there. Fortunately, they had given us, me being the teacher, they'd given us a room in a in a home that was there that was air conditioned, but the conference people didn't have facilities like they were sleeping in little cabins, dormitories didn't have that. And the meeting place where we met was in an outdoor tabernacle and it was hot, even in the morning when we'd teach or the afternoon or evening. And the and the dining room, there wasn't any air conditioning. You'd get your meal through this cafeteria line, then you'd sit out on these under kind of a roof that was screened in, but there wasn't any air conditioning. It was a time that it tried a lot of these Christian families. A lot of them had come a long ways for that conference. But just the heat and the frustration of not being able to get away from that would, you know, you'd hear parents yell at their kids and kids squeal and all that kind of stuff. Well, I was teaching on the family, and a guy came up to me one day and said, uh, very frank, it's the kind of thing that you need to hear once in a while. He said, you know, uh, I wasn't too impressed. I have been too impressed on your teaching about the family. He said, I kept saying to myself, yeah, he's got kids, but what are they really like, you know? Well, He'd seen our, three of our kids there, Glenn and Lisa and Laura. And one particular meal, they'd gone to lunch when Alice and I didn't go. But he said, the thing that this fellow had seen, and this is what impressed him. He says, I wasn't too impressed with your teaching until he said, I saw your kids while you and your wife weren't around. And he said, the other day they were, 
sitting in the, came into the lunchroom, the three of them got their lunch together, and they were sitting at a table. And he said, I thought to myself, yeah, how are they going to act when their parents are around? And he said, the thing that was amazing, he said, I listened to your son say something like, I've got to go, I want to go get another glass of water. He said, both your daughters jumped up and said, let me get it for you. And they even kind of argued between one another about which one would go get your son a glass of water. And he said, the way, the respect they had for each other, the respect your daughters had for your son said more to me about your teaching on family than anything particularly that you taught. I thought, God, thank God he didn't see them like they act sometimes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I think you see the point I'm making. We have really been blessed with our family. We reared five beautiful children. They're all married, saved, baptized in spirit. All married Christian spouses are baptized in spirit. We have 11 grandchildren, two more on the way. Feel more like Abraham every day. <laughs> but we are extremely grateful to God. But you know, people say, uh, how did you work that? How did you manage for all your kids to turn out that way? Well, we, we really didn't. All we did was live it out a day at a time and tried to put into our kids what we believed, what we felt was important, tried to demonstrate uh, our love for each other and our love for them and to teach them the love of God. And we did it just on a day-by-day -day basis. And we went through certain crises. We went through certain difficult times. Our kids were not perfect. We're not perfect. But the amazing thing was suddenly the day came when they were grown. And we saw in the recent years we have seen the fruit of what God deposited in us years ago. Uh, so God wants us, as I said in the beginning, God, when we were saved and baptized with the Spirit, deposited something in us. He deposited His Spirit within us. And He yearns for, looks for, watches for, waits for a return on what he deposited. He wants it returned with interest. He wants to, us to be faithful, to trust him for miracles, what he can do for us. He wants us to go all through life faithful, to trust him for ministry, what he can do with us. But most of all, he wants us to go all the way through life being faithful to trust him for maturity, what he can do in us in order that we may all grow up into the fullness of the stature of our Lord Jesus Christ. Final scripture, Paul tells us how. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last sentence tells us how it's possible. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen? Amen. Amen.